you have one of these. Um, yeah, kids can be dismissed for junior church. I always forget that. But if you if you go in the back, there's books like this. All throughout our, our building, there's books like this. You have them at home, right? This is the Bible. How long did it take to write the Bible? Anybody want to give a guess? Years and years. I've been alive for years and years. 38 of them. That's years and years. How, how, how many years did the Bible take to be written? About 1,500. Maybe 1,400. Right in there. 1,400 years. We're not even sure how many different authors. 39 of them before Jesus. 27 of those books come after Jesus' birth and resurrection and death and all of that. And, you know, there's, there's a lot in here, right? And, you know, when I was a kid, they told me, they were like, anybody can read this book. And I started trying. Oh, my goodness. And I got to, like, Genesis 3, and I was like, I'm not sure I can do this, you know? Fourth grade, trying to read Genesis. And I got to the he begats in Genesis 7 and 5. And, you know, I mean, I was just, like, starting to question a lot of things, you know, when you get to that. But, you know, 38 years of age, I've come to realize that this book has a lot of stuff in it. And we're unwrapping the names of Christmas, the, the words that are written and spoken about Jesus. And that's what this series is about. And embedded within this book, and right from the beginning, has been this kind of plan. And it's a plan that is beyond any one of its authors to understand. It's beyond any one of its the, the thinkers and the teachers who are represented in it. Besides God himself and besides Jesus, nobody got this plan. It's just been sitting there. And frankly, some of it was sitting there readable. Available. People could just pick up the book of Isaiah or Daniel and they could see pieces of it. And yet what they were reading was very difficult to make sense of until after what they saw in the birth of Jesus and then the cross and then the resurrection. And then they could look back. Messiah is the word we're going to be talking about this morning. And Messiah is one of those words. It's a Hebrew word. It literally is Hebrew. We rarely talk literal Hebrew in here. But Messiah is a word that's literal Hebrew. And it's embedded throughout the Bible. In fact, it starts out as a smaller word. It's just Messiah. That's all it is, and it has a specific meaning. And then it's kind of embedded in all these stories about leadership and all these stories about what God was doing, and it just keeps growing, and God keeps pulling that thread until it expands and it expands, until it gets to a final moment when people say, oh my goodness, this word that's been sitting here in this book and has been embedded by all of these different authors that nobody saw it coming, all of a sudden they were looking at Jesus and they go, that's who this is. Oh my goodness. And it's kind of an aha moment. It's a, it's a bright moment. We're going to walk through the Bible this morning and kind of discover how that took place, what was going on all the way through the Bible about this word. So let me just, by way of starting, this word will probably be a little more familiar to you, and we need to talk about it. What's, what's that word mean? Is that Jesus' last name, Christ? You know? We have Bob Dylan, you know? And we have uh, Mike Tomlin, the coach of the Steelers. And we have, is that, is that is this Jesus Christ? It's not, right? This is more than a name that everybody shouts when they miss the nail with a hammer and they hit their thumb. <laughs> right? But this is what you hear people say. Jesus Christ. What does that word mean? Well, it means this. It means exactly what we're going to be talking about. It means Messiah. Same word. One's Greek, one is Hebrew, but it's the same word. And they both come from this word, anointed. And that's a really weird word. Dave Willauer and I, one of our elders and our administrative pastor now, were in Israel last year. And uh, 
We still both, we talked this week, or the, this year, uh, on the, in the morning that was the first anniversary of our coming over the Mount of Olives, where Jesus actually ascended into heaven. We came over that mountain. You gotta drive over that mountain to get to Jerusalem from the way we were coming from. And we both still remember we were talking on that morning a year later about what it was like to come over and see Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and all of these ancient buildings and all this. It was, I mean, absolutely a surreal experience. Dave and I have talked about the fact that of all of the places we were at, we have different recollections and experiences. Dave and I are not the same sort of human being. And uh, we both found different things memorable. But one we found the same was the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus spent the night that he was betrayed. You know, Judas is coming from the city with all of these religious leaders to betray Christ. And Jesus is there with his disciples, especially Peter, James, and John were closest to him. And he was in the garden. It's interesting. In that garden still growing are some of the plants. Some people think those plants are already, they came all the way back. They're 2,000 years old. That's probably not true, but they are really ancient. And the predominant thing in that garden is they're olive trees. You find these all over Israel. Olive trees are everywhere. I have a leaf in my Bible, my other Bible, not this one, the one I keep at home. And I have a leaf in my Bible that's kind of a, I bought it there. I didn't pick one of the leaves from the Garden of Gethsemane. You weren't allowed to do that. I think you could end up in jail doing that. But you could pay a dollar fifty or something and get one of those leaves and you could take it home. And this is, you know, an olive tree. And the olives grow on the olive tree. And olive oil comes from olives that grow on olive trees. And they're all over Israel. And the people of Israel got so into olive oil, they do everything with it. Honestly, it's like it's, on, it's in their mayonnaise. That's true. They they uh, they call it something else, but it's in, in they they heated their houses with it when it was cold at night. They put it in their lamps and they let their candles. They didn't burn like wax like this. That was a European idea. They they actually burned lamps in the temple and in everybody's home that was made out of olive oil. And of course, they used them in their salads and all sorts of things. And that oil became just part of the fabric of what it meant to be an Israelite. Jewish people use oil for everything. And they started to do something interesting with that oil. They started to use it in their leadership ceremonies. You know, I watched this past, I guess it was a year ago, uh, as the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sang. Just beautiful. Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir is my favorite choir on the planet. And they sang at Obama's inauguration in Washington, D.C. And they just sang this beautiful anthem. And then a poet got up, and there was all of these dignitaries and all of these different people, and the, the cameras were there to, to kind of scan the crowd and catch people's faces who were really riveted by this moment. And you know, that's how we anoint a leader in our culture. But in Israel, they started to anoint leaders very differently. They anointed them with this oil. They'd put it on their heads or they put it on different parts of their body. And they would say, you are a leader. That's how you became a leader in the ancient world. It's interesting. There's three types of leaders who became anointed. These are the three, and they're found all the way throughout the Old Testament. And interestingly, if you look at Jesus, he's every one of these, right? Last week, Tim told you he's the king. He's the coming political leader. He's the political leader of all political leaders. He's the one who is very much the one where we're all supposed to kind of find our peace in. And ultimately, that's going to work. Today, it doesn't work because we haven't all accepted that. But then, then he's a priest, according to the book of Hebrews. And he's a prophet, according to many parts of the New Testament. He's a truth-sayer. He's a speaker. He's a communicator. He's a lot of things, right? And each one of those things, each one of those leadership roles, it's a role that you got anointed into. The people of Israel were good at getting themselves into trouble. Anybody good at getting themselves into trouble? Come on. Honestly. 
I'm looking at some of you, and I know you well enough to know that you've gotten I know you've been in trouble this past week, and you know I've been in trouble. We've had issues in our life, right? And whenever God's people get in trouble, they require leaders to get themselves out of trouble. And across the Old Testament, God sent them these leaders. And he says, listen, you're in need of help. And let me send you one of these people who I have specially anointed. And it became kind of the sort of thing that it wasn't just people anointing leaders. It was actually God choosing leaders and saying, let me send you someone who's going to change your life, change the trajectory of God following in your culture, change the trajectory of what your life's about. And I'm going to do that through a leader. We just went through the series, uh, David, right? And we talked about, it started out with David being anointed, if you were here. First Samuel records the story. Samuel the prophet goes to this little town, Bethlehem, that people thought of in that day as out of the way and not really much to look at. And he went to this guy named Jesse's house, and he went down the list of sons, one, then the other, then the other. Seven sons, he got down all the way through that list, and he said, none of these are supposed to be God's chosen leader, but God has sent me here to choose a leader. Do you have another son? And Jesse says, well, i got to send somebody out to the fields to get my last son. There's this guy named David. And nobody thought he could be a great king, right? And yet Samuel anoints him to be a leader. And the next thing you know, he's killing Goliath, and he's doing all of this great stuff, and he's a great leader. He's the best leader maybe that Israel ever has before Jesus. The people of God are united, and he's a great worship leader while being a great warrior. He's frankly, in some ways, more than one of these roles. He's a king most predominantly, but he speaks words of prophecy and he leads the people in worship like a priest. And he does all of those different things. He's a great, great anointed leader. And then something happens, right? He's on the rooftop at night and he sees a bathing woman. A lot of guys have had trouble in this moment in their life. A lot of people who have been anointed in the Old Testament had trouble like that. Maybe it wasn't with a woman. Maybe it wasn't with somebody of the opposite gender. Maybe it was this or maybe it was that. But all of those prophets, all of those priests, all of those kings came to a moment of failure, every one of them. If you read through the Old Testament, most of the people we call heroes of the faith have some dark side to their storyline. When I was a kid, our church did a Bible study. The women, the men weren't invited. It's, the Bible study was entitled Bad Girls of the Bible. That's because there's a lot of bad girls in the Bible, and there's even more bad men, you know? And some of those bad men did really great things, and they were called upon by God to take the people of God in a moment when they had failed and they'd sinned and they were broken, and God said, I'm going to anoint this person a leader in your culture, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them, I'm going to be with them, I'm going to stay with them, and I'm going to help them to become a leader so that they can lead the rest of the people into freedom. Well, this word became more than it was. It was not just to be anointed by oil, and it was not just to be anointed a leader, but people started to think maybe this anointing has to do with something else. You know, we're going to talk this word about the word, this, this morning about the word Messiah, and that means to be anointed, and we're going to walk through just kind of what it means for God to anoint somebody as a leader, and, and especially what that meant for Jesus and what he offers us, right? First of all, he's chosen. He's anticipated, second, and third, he's victorious. We're going to walk through those. Let me tell you about chosen, okay? You know, leaders come to us, and they tell us that they're our leaders. We have a lot of people in our culture who will tell us, and you have a lot of people in your life that can call you and say, listen, I have a plan for your life, and it's going to help you. You always got to worry about people who think they know what's best for other people, right? They have chosen themselves to be leaders, and 
there's a lot of people who chose themselves to be an anointed leader in the ancient world. And there was a lot of people in Jesus' day who chose themselves to be the anointed Messiah. And they all fell by the wayside like David. They fell by the wayside like priests who had failed. They all went their own way. Some of them passed away. Others of them just kind of failed in the middle of it all. And they kind of morally fell off the off of the screen, so to speak. But, you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus is chosen and that he's chosen by forces that are beyond anybody in this universe. He wasn't chosen by people in the first century B.C. He wasn't chosen by people in his own day. He wasn't chosen in history. He was chosen by God himself. This past week, Nelson Mandela died. Did you notice this? One of the great men of our era. I mean, Nelson Mandela lived through and survived through things that I can't even imagine. 27 years of being incarcerated. Some of those he decided to willingly be incarcerated because he grew in fame to the point where he was he was saying, you know, people want to release me, but they don't want to release all the other people who are unjustly imprisoned in South Africa. So I'm going to stay in prison until you release them as well as a statement. That takes a lot of confidence, a lot of courage, and a lot of humility. And he, he combined all that stuff. I'm an amazing man. I saw on Facebook, I love how Facebook responds in moments like this, right? All my friends were saying things like great man and Mandela quotes and all this different stuff. And then there was one guy, okay? And I'm just going to tell you, I think he blew it. In Chicago this past Friday, there was, a, there was an interview with Kanye West where the interviewer asked him and just said, hey, Kanye, who do you think's going to replace Nelson Mandela? And Kanye said what I was just hoping he wouldn't say. Me. He said, it's going to be me. I'll be the next Nelson Mandela. I think I have a wider following. More people are listening to my music than ever listen to Nelson Mandela. At one point he actually said, you know, there's only like two people in South Africa. I'm in the United States where there's millions and millions of people. People love me. They're going to be my followers, and I am going to be the next great civil rights leader. I'm going to be the next great freedom bringer. I'm going to transform culture through the lyrics of my songs. And the, the guy who interviewed him was like, you got to be kidding, right? Like, it's, it's not working. You're not going to pull this off. And, and he said, no, really, it's me. Well, you can't choose yourself to be an anointed leader. You can't choose yourself and say, look, it's me. You can't do that. And the great story about Jesus is that far back, farther back, and I think there's all sorts of leaders who have been anointed for roles in the moment. I watched the movie Abraham Lincoln, the, the Lincoln movie that came out last year, and Steven Spielberg was writing and directing this whole thing. It's just an amazing storyline, right? And I found my heart just absolutely moved. And I thought, you know what? How much does God love us that he sent this man at the right moment in our country's history to do all this great work? One of the least popular presidents of all time. There's something anointed about that, right? I don't know how God works. And nobody in the Bible said there was going to be a leader, the 16th president of the United States. But I have the sense that there was a divine hand behind that. And there's been a divine hand behind all sorts of things in history where people far beyond the Bible's pages were led by God and put in the right place at the right time to bring freedom and hope to people who are in great darkness, right? I'm not sure Kanye West is that guy for me yet. But I know Nelson Mandela was, and I know Abraham Lincoln was, and I know that there have been people across the world that have done great things like that. Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. There's all sorts of people we could talk about. But what's amazing about this story is that farther back, before anybody was even thinking about it, God started to embed this word. And it says that he chose this moment. In history, all the way from way back deep, he started to embed words in the scriptures that that amounted to people realizing that there was a coming anointed one. And all of these other anointed ones, they failed. They had broken moments. They had 
thoughts that they would hope that nobody would ever see. They had actions that they were wishing that could stay like skeletons in a closet far in their past. This one, God says, is going to be different. And he's going to be chosen. Psalm 132, I just want to read for you a little bit. This is written hundreds of years after King David, but it's, it's kind of reminiscent of David's life. It says this, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. You know, when you get to the Gospels in the New Testament, they go to great lengths to describe the lineage of Jesus. There's a reason they're doing that. They're tying Jesus back to this prophecy that took place in 2 Samuel 7, where God looked at David in a moment when David was right and good, and he said, you will always have someone to sit on the throne of Israel. There will be an anointed one that will come from you, and he will sit on this throne for all time. And that prophecy lives throughout the ancient world until hundreds of years later, this writer, we don't even know who it is, is looking back on David and saying, God, bring that anointed one because all of our leaders, including David, have failed. We need somebody who's anointed beyond that anointing. We need somebody who's a Messiah, who's not just somebody who's been anointed, but is going to be the quote-unquote entitled anointed one. The one who's going to, for all of eternity, have this role, have this leadership position. It starts to grow. That tiny little word began with priests who were anointed and prophets who were anointed and kings who were anointed. And it became something much larger where people fixed their hopes on this word. And they said, God, could you send someone who can bring it all to a culminating moment? There's one place in the Old Testament where the word Messiah actually takes place in Hebrew. It's not in the English, interestingly. But this is Daniel chapter 9. And you got to really think deeply before you as a pastor quote Daniel in a sermon. I just got to tell you because the last half of Daniel is filled with visions and weird stuff and a lot of it you can't make a ton of sense of but you can see glimmers of the truth. Now interestingly Daniel chapter 9 is the place if you have a moment of repentance in your life go to Daniel 9. Daniel's a, a great sage, a great leader, but he's been kicked out of his country and he's in this land called Babylon and he's just lamenting the fall of his people and he starts praying to God and he says God I come from a nation that's broken. And we're not broken because you broke us. We're broken because we are broken. We failed you, God. We failed you. Could you forgive us and could you restore us and could you bless us? And I'm reading in the word and it says you will do these things. Can you do them in my day? And Daniel prays this great prayer. It's phenomenal. And God sends a messenger. God answers him. And guess who that messenger is? You might not know this, but the messenger's name is Gabriel. And, you know, Mary's not the first person Gabriel spoke to. He's an angel. And he comes and speaks to Daniel, and this is part of that prophecy that is the reply to Daniel's prayer. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Now listen to these words, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. All of these words are describing what the Messiah will someday accomplish. All of these anointings are giving birth to one final anointed one. And Daniel's saying, he will come. Listen further. Now, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. That's the time of Jesus, by the way. That's the time Jesus was born into. There was a temple. It was built. It was restored. There was an anointed place of worship, and yet it was troubled because it was never independent. There was no openness of worship. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, 
and shall have nothing. Nobody knew what these words meant when Daniel received them from Gabriel and he wrote them down and people read them and it was kind of weird, you know? Some great leader who's in the middle of his leadership cut off. What does that even mean? But when you start to think about Jesus as the Messiah and you start to think of him as the anointed leader who's above all anointed leaders, you have this moment where he's cut off, right? Where he's dead. Where that cross sitting in the middle of two other crosses. Jesus is hanging there. The one sinner has come to the place where Jesus said, you're going to be today with me in paradise. And there's this kind of understanding that starts to grow that Daniel was on to something. And we don't even know what he was on to because it's this weird prophetic stuff that turns about but has glimmers of the truth. And this anointed one who just means that there's an anointed leader, just about an olive tree and some oil, eventually becomes a king. And that king becomes a failure. And then another king becomes a failure. And eventually we're looking for a king who's not a failure. We're looking for a priest who's not a failure. And we're looking for a prophet who's not a failure. We're looking for somebody chosen from above all of our choices. We're looking for somebody beyond this world, somebody who God can bring into our lives, who is very different from all the leaders that have ever been here. And Daniel kind of brings this to a head and says, we're looking for a Messiah. We're looking for an anointed one. And that anointed one's going to look a little different than you think. Let me describe this for you because he says that anointed one is going to be anointed to die. He's going to be cut off. And that anointed one is not going to set you free from the troubled times you're living in so much as he's going to finish the transgressions. Those are the sins, the failures, the walking outside the line is what the word means. To put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. That means to purify. How many of you just wish your head didn't think the thoughts it thinks? Let's be honest. How many of you wish that when that car commercial shows you that if you were really a viable human being, you'd own this certain sort of car, you didn't believe it? You ever think that? I just need that car this year. Or I need that set of clothing. Or I need that makeup. Or I need that kitchen appliance. Or I need that. It's a long list, right? An endless list of purchases. All of the things that we could want. My daughter Maggie and I were having a conversation. We had a sick day this week where our kids just weren't doing too well. And we all kind of sat on the couch for a little while. And there was a commercial that came on, and she said, I want that. You know, there's going to be another commercial five minutes down the road. You're going to want that too, and you're going to want the next thing, and you're going to keep wanting. And we had this whole conversation. I said, do I need to get you everything you want to be a good dad? Yep, everything I want. That's what she said. That's kind of the way we feel, right? And how many of us wish we could start to desire the right stuff, the good stuff, the things that are worth investing in, as opposed to all of the trite little imitations of goodness that we want to buy into every Christmas? This tells us that the Messiah is going to set us free from this stuff. He's going to finish the transgression. He's going to get rid of the sin. He's going to cleanse us, and he's going to provide purity. How could that even happen? Well, he's going to be cut off. An anointed one who's going to die. An anointed one, a Messiah, who's going to do something beyond all of the other kings of this world, which were about their own power and were about their own privilege and were about their own leadership. And this one is going to say, no, I'm going to lay it all down. And the inklings of that are just coming out. We could, record, we could read any number of other passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 6. It could go on and on and on. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Isaiah, Isaiah alone has endless prophecies about this person, recording and pro- prophesying that something amazing is about to come. But Daniel maybe puts it most cryptically and also most beautifully. And he hands it to us and he says, listen, this is what you're to be expecting. God himself not self-promoting some leader, but God promoting a leader, has handed us somebody who's going to change the game, 
And he's going to offer a new reality from which we can see. From. We, can, we can cut ourselves off from this sin through his power. We can be redeemed from our failures. We can br- walk into a new cleansing, a new purity, a new hope. This one was chosen for us. There's leaders all over the place who choose themselves, but this one, nobody wants to be one of those leaders who dies, right? Nobody wants to be one of those leaders who lays aside all of their heart sins and all of their brokenness of our world and says instead that I'm going to forgive and I'm going to cleanse and I'm going to bless. That's what Jesus did. It goes on, you know, this Messiah was anticipated. And I want to show you, there's an anointing story that I think maybe most of us miss. You know, there's anointings all throughout the Old Testament. Kings and priests are anointed, and those ceremonies are recorded for us. And eventually they get kind of grandiose like our inauguration ceremonies. But this one is really different. You know what a Pharisee is? It says one of the Pharisees. You read that? What's a Pharisee? Don't, Don't everybody answer at once. Yeah, They weren't priests, actually. They were religious leaders. What are religious leaders known for? Come on. What are they known for? Hypocrites? Rules and laws. And Pharisees were known for being hypocrites and rules and laws. In fact, Jesus is the first person to call them hypocrites. As far as we know, he invented a word. Hypocrite is a word invented by Christ to use this way. And he says, you Pharisees are hypocrites. You're actors is what the word means. You're imitators. You're people who don't live it, but you do talk about it. There's another word I like, and that's just self-righteous, right? These guys were self-righteous. And one of them invites Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. You know, kings and priests are anointed in interesting ways. Usually people know this is a moment, right? People kind of talk about it. Well, people talked about this. But they talked about it with a very different tone. It says this woman was a sinner, and I don't know what you need to do to be a sinner in that society. I have a suspicion that it was a fairly public sin, you know? This woman was known for living on the other side of the tracks, the place where no Messiah should ever go. No prophet should be found, no leader, because their hypocrisy would be proven if they connected with a woman like this. And instead, Jesus says, no, I'm going to allow her to be the agent of my anointing. I'm going to be the one. This this is almost a prophetic act. You've heard of prophecies, which are words spoken, but this is an act about something that is very prophetic, something deeper is going on. And the woman says, listen, I know that my transgression started with one tiny sin. It's not very hard to quit sinning when you sin once, right? It's pretty easy to get rid of sin. One of our elders periodically says, you know, I find that I can sin, and I, I have a moment with sin where I can see it. It's tempting, and if I say no, it's not a big deal after that. But if I say yes, oh, goodness. It grows and it becomes a little bit of a problem. And then it becomes a moderate-sized problem. Eventually becomes a huge problem. Well, whoever this woman is and whatever has gone on in her life, I have a suspicion that at some point she said yes to a sin. And that sin grew. And it got bigger. And then it got bigger. And then it got bigger. And she was called by her society, by the people in her community, she was called a sinner. That was her title. She wasn't a Messiah. We knew that. She wasn't a priest, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, any of the leaders, any of the sects of that day, any of the people groups of that day, none of those people. She was known as a sinner. And that means she was in touch with something that easily, if we're self-righteous, we get out of touch with, right? She was aware that when Daniel 9 prophesied that there was a Messiah that was going to take away her transgressions, she she knew she needed those transgressions handled. 
She knew that when he offered cleansing and atonement purity, that she wanted that. And it had been a long time. You know, we like sin when it's in its earliest stages, but when it grows to this final place, it's not fun anymore. Sin starts out being a great time. It really is. Whatever it is, it's always, it attracts us because it's good and fun in our senses. And yet, over time, it matures into something that's evil and dark and broken. And that's where this woman had gotten, and she said, listen, Lord Jesus, let me anoint you. Because you're the Messiah and because I need what the Messiah was supposed to offer. I need to be offered this transgression removal, this sin removal system, this cleansing, this purity that you offer me. This is what I need. I love the fact that Jesus was anticipated. He was chosen by God and embedded within the scriptures for hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus' birth. You can see inklings of this word becoming something more and bigger and a title that will give birth to Jesus actually becoming somebody who's beyond. But then he's anticipated, and who anticipates him is fascinating. None of the religious leaders, none of those self-righteous hypocrites see it coming. In fact, most of them reject him outright, just say, no way, I don't want anything to do with you. But on the other hand, here's a sinner in the house of a Pharisee who says, let me be a part of this literal anointed one. Let me just worship you. Let me wipe your feet with my hair and put this expensive oil on it and do all of this different stuff because I love you. The the Pharisee says something interesting to Jesus. He, He says it under his breath. He doesn't really say it to Jesus. He says, if this man was really a holy man, if he was a prophet, he would know, he would know that this woman is somebody who he should not allow to touch him. And then Jesus says, let me just ask you a question. Who loves more, the person who's forgiven a little or the person who's forgiven a lot? It's as though he compares, you know, the, the forgiveness process to a new car and he says, you know, in fact, I got an email this week that was just great. Yesterday I got it. I got a new set of tires in like 1995 or something for one of my cars and that place still had my identity. And they sent me an email and they said, your 1993 Oldsmobile needs new tires. We know this because you have 586,000 miles on it, according to our computer's prognostication. I thought if I still had that car, what a mess it would be. That, That thing is made into soda cans by now, you know. And Jesus says, listen, who can you, who, who loves more? The person who's forgiven for a 1993 Oldsmobile or the person who's forgiven and handed a 2013 Lexus? Who, who loves more? And he says, listen, is it greater or lesser? And the Pharisee has to say, well, that woman probably loves you more. And why? Because she's forgiven more and yet she's cleansed equally. Jesus turns this whole thing around in the Pharisee and says, you're just self-righteous. You didn't anticipate the Messiah. You didn't want an anointed one. You weren't in touch with your own sin. You weren't in touch with your your own depravity. You were unhumbly walking self-righteously through this world saying, I am the man. And I approached you and offered you this great hope that the Messiah of all of the world, the, the, the culminating moment of what God's all about, comes into your house and eats a dinner, and you didn't even worry about washing my feet and taking care of me in the usual customs of the day. But this woman did, right? This woman did because she's in touch with what it means. It's very interesting what it takes to receive this Messiah and anticipate him. You've got to be in touch with your failure because he's perfection and the distance between us and him has to be recognized. Jesus doesn't make the, the Pharisee see that. He just says, listen, I'm going to accept this woman for who she is, a beloved child of God, even though she's failed, even though she's broken. This Messiah was anticipated. There's another step, and that's that this Messiah is victorious. It tells us in Philippians 2 something interesting. This is an Old Testament quotation, but Paul's at the end of his life, the great missionary 
He's kind of a, a, a saint of the church, if you will. He wrote 13 New Testament books, and he writes this. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The original words for this, Paul's quoting, they come from a prophecy where an anointed one who nobody likes is coming. There's this foreign marauding leader who's got a gigantic military, and God's people have failed, and he says, I'm not going to protect you against this leader. In fact, I'm going to anoint him to be the judge of you. And they all say, well, he's worse than we are. And he says, well, listen, you had given, been given all the hope of knowing what God's plan for your life was, and you decided to reject that. And this leader comes on the scene and he says, every knee is going to bow to this leader, whether you like it or not. His name is Cyrus. Every leader is going to bow. It comes from Isaiah 45. Every, every person's going to bow to this one leader who's going to come into your land and who's going to be the anointed one for that day. But then I'm going to birth something else. That anointed one is going to give rise to a greater anointed one. And Paul steals that language. He like rips it from a 1970s song for the lyrics of today. And he says, listen, there's a leader now that everybody's bowing to. Whether you're Cyrus, whether you're David, whether you're Moses, whether you're Abraham, every knee shall bow from time's beginning till time's end, from the alpha of our time to the omega of the ending. Whatever is going to happen, every person is going to bow the knee to Jesus the Messiah because God has been embedding his DNA in the very words of the scripture, bringing to us this thought that there will be an anointed leader who will absolutely cast a wider shadow than any leader in history and he will look small and he will be cut off and yet what he will accomplish will not be mostly political and it will not be mostly economic and will not be mostly military what it will be is transformational on the inside of human beings you know for a long time we've thought and frankly our newspapers still think that the solution to our problems comes from the government doing the right thing right wouldn't it be nice if really whatever you think of our president, if he actually had the power to affect change. No, no president has ever had that power on the level that this is talking about, right? We need something beyond the political leaders of our day, beyond the tanks and guns and warships, beyond nuclear power, beyond the economic forces that we seem to really struggle to prognosticate and predict and deal with. Beyond all of those things, we need something because what's wrong with us is not massively out there. It's very small and very in here. It's us. We're deeply broken. And this passage of Scripture tells us that the Messiah came to victoriously conquer what's wrong with us. The victory is first inside, not out. Everybody was looking like that Pharisee going, when will you step up into your leadership role? When will you gain your military power? When will you step into what God's plan seemingly would be for our day? And Jesus says, I'm stepping into it right now. I'm stepping into it as I'm breathing my last. I'm stepping into it as I'm hanging on a cross. I'm stepping into it as I'm raising from the dead. And I'm stepping into it when I take these weak little sinners, people like me, people like you, and I'm blessing them with a Messiah who loves them and can offer the cleansing and transgression removal, the sin removal, the purity that we all need. You know, there's a lot of expectations. People love to look at a baby in a manger. We like babies anyway, right? I love it whenever anybody in our church has a baby. I get to go up to the hospital, and usually the parents let me hold the baby, and I just get to hold this little person. It's just amazing. They're just very different. They're unique. They're, they're tiny. We love babies. 
But this baby was born for something beyond. And what the Bible tells us about him is embedded from of old and is going to the new. And it's very much about this victory that God wants to win in our lives. The church has for a long time set apart different seasons of the year. We set apart Lent and we set apart Advent. Lent is the season leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Advent is about somebody coming who's from outside. That's what the word literally means. And we're in Advent. And what it means is that we need to be prepared. This is a time of preparation where we can get our hearts right again with God. And sometimes it's just really easy to talk about a baby and to talk about all of the parties. But this thing actually tells us that we need forgiveness. We need something. We need victory in here. And I hope during this season, as the candles are being lit and as we're reading these lines and as you go to different parties and as you are a part of this and that and whatever is going on in your life, that you will make sure that what you're most focused on is the sin removal of your life. That there might be things that need to be written down that need to be handled. You know, this past week we had the stations of Advent and the walls are still out there. And there's there's right up here, if you were here, there's a bunch of you who were, I know, because I could see your names on different things. But there was a communion table right here. And there was, you know, people were asked to look at the cross and be reminded that Advent actually is the beginning of us focusing on this moment. Not just the baby in a manger, but a, a death and a resurrection. And then there was a bucket right here, and there was water in it. And you could write your sins down on this paper. I found this very meaningful for me. I sat down, and I sat there and looked, and I could see the, the sin in my life. I can see the failures. I can see, among all the things, self-righteousness. It's so there for religious leaders. And, and you can look at that cross, and you could say, you know, there's something wrong with Josh. And then the station asked me to write it down, so I wrote it down, and then I could put it in that bucket, and then the paper just disappeared. It was that, you know, it's kind of chintzy, but it's that spy paper stuff that just goes away. Then we were asked to read Isaiah where it says that your sins were as scarlet, but they'll be made as white as snow. You know, what this is about is us getting cleansed, getting whole, getting pure, getting blessed again. And God embedded language in our lives that tells us that we need an anointed one. And we need it not so the people in Washington will do it right, not so the people in Harrisburg or Norristown will do it right, but the people here, you, me. How do we get right? How do we get on our knees before God and say, listen, like this woman, we need to anoint you again. We need to choose you to be the anointed one because you were chosen for us. God himself chose this Savior for us. But now we get the chance to choose and say, yes, we're going to anoint you again in our life this year. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to get rid of that stuff? Are you ready to journal it out and say, okay, God, take it from me. I need to be cleansed. I need to have it removed. You might spend some time this afternoon on this. It's going to be too late when you get to about December 20th. You can't think about this anymore. We're in celebration mode at that moment. Everything's happy and joyful. But maybe today is the day when you need to set aside time to just go, you know what? Every knee has to bow, and that includes me. Every tongue needs to confess, and that includes me. And what that means is I need to agree with God about what's wrong with my life, and I don't know what is between you and him, and I don't want to know, but you might need to write it down, or you might need to just confess it into the atmosphere and say, God, please hear my prayer, because you promised all the way back there, 2,700 years ago, to Daniel, that you would remove sin through this person, and I need it removed today. I need it gone. I need it gotten over. I'm tired of walking in my failure. If that's you, keep a journal. Take a moment. Set yourself apart. Tell your spouse, I'm not going to be here this afternoon. I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to do something. I'm going to start talking with God about this thing, and I'm going to get it off my chest, and I'm going to get right with him because we need to move into the season with a different attitude. We need to be people 
who anoint again our anointed one. We need to claim this Messiah for us. Join me in prayer.